this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 11, and we're recording on Wednesday, July 17th. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, I just saw you yesterday, and now we're recording. And because you're back we, in Richmond. We live in the future. That's amazing, right? It is amazing. And yeah, both, it was uh, nice to see your face in person. I know, right? It's um, it's always good to see the people we work with, even if they live far, far away in the backwater that is Richmond, Virginia. Oh, wait, backwater. sorry. I mean, uh, oh, hey, driving uh, eastern seaboard metropolis of Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. I retract my offer to come day drink with you once a month now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so we have... There's one huge story this week, but we got a few other things to get to first. So you want to lead us off on doing some follow-up? Sure, yeah. Last week uh, when we had Andrew Lasowski from the Huffington it Post. It was great, by the books. way. Oh, thanks. It was it was fun. You know, I missed you, Jeff, but I, I always miss well, you. Well, that's I'm, very kind of you. I just live in a constant state of missing Jeff. You're an excellent liar. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm working on that. We talked a lot about um, Ender's Game, which is being made into a film finally, um, and how the LGBT community and allies have had quite a strong reaction now, um, sort of belatedly in something that's been simmering for a while to author Orson Scott Card's very vocal anti-gay opinions. Uh, so there is a skip Ender's Game boycott that's that's happening. Uh, the idea being don't go see the movie because you don't want to put more money into the pocket of an author who holds uh, views that you find abhorrent. And Lionsgate, which is producing the film, has finally responded. Uh, so th- this has been interesting. We were wondering what was going to happen. They have responded um, to try to reach out to the community. They're doing some stuff like special screenings, but the statements that they're making are interesting. Lionsgate finally uh, issued a statement to Entertainment Weekly this week where they uh, distanced themselves very intentionally from Orson Scott Card's opinions and then highlighted Lionsgate's history of films related to LGBT issues, but also the company's recognition of same-sex partnerships um, for domestic benefits long before that was a common thing. Uh, in the corporate world. But they're also saying not only this, not only are we as a company um, very much in support of uh, the gay and lesbian community, but these issues are irrelevant to Ender's Game. Um, this is a story that's about altruism. That's a, you know, like dystopian kids in space sort of adventure. It's not at all about um, LGBT issues, which having read the book, I think is fair. Um, but to me, that's an interesting angle that they're taking. You know, don't be like, don't hate on Orson Scott Card. Don't skip this movie because the movie has nothing to do with his opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's yeah, where that they're interesting. That's, that's their official response. You guys did a good job talking about it last time. And this is one that I think we're probably just going to talk about until we're all dead. Probably um, not, not this particular, but the matter of if you want to or can separate a particular author's behavior and opinion from the work and your support of that work and, if you even read a used copy that you found on the street, are you supporting the work or if you just give them dollars? I think about film, the thing that's interesting is that I guess it's only that we know if you're a liberal pinko communist bastard like I am, that he has these particular views that it, 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 it gives you pause. But there are thousands of people that work on a huge movie like this, right? Oh, and yeah. You there know some of them are, are jerks. Mm-hmm. You, they have to be, right? It's just the statistics, man, because statistics. Um, so, <laughs> so I, I guess so there it's have just to be that jerks we know on any he's a jerk, and he's a right. jerk about this particular thing. I'm not saying, uh, I'm not saying it's wrong or anything to, to have issue with him, n- not by any stretch of the imagination. It just occurs to me that it's kind of the exception that proves the rule that we don't know anything about the people that make the art that we care about. Um, and in this one particular case, we do. And I wonder if we knew more about the directors and the writers and screenwriters and actors and all of those things. Like, would we have this reaction more often or less often? I don't, I'm not mm-hmm. sure about that. Um, but anyway, I, it's probably a good PR move by Lionsgate. I wish I felt like it was more than a PR move. Um, 
but you know they do they do have a good history of films with uh, LGBT issues and it's it's always a good sign that they have same sex part same sex partner benefits so you know Lionsgate is going to make more money off Ender's Game than Orson Scott Cardwell. I mean, there's just no question about it. Uh, that's how the movies work. So, you know, think about that if, if you're uh, wondering about whether you're going to go see the movie. My, my, my stance on these sorts of things is always, I'll go see the art I want to go see and then make my regular contributions to the ACLU and kind of call it a walk. It's like carbon uh, offsetting my morality. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we talked about that with Chick-fil-A last week. And I think what would be interesting here is if Lionsgate sort of did, um, Andrew mentioned that last week that Chumbawamba, which is, you know, the tub thumping band from the 90s, had taken a commercial deal um, and taken a lot of money to allow one of their songs to be used in a commercial for a product that they actually hated. But they said, Mm -hmm. we took the money so we could donate it to a cause that we believe in. Because if we didn't take the money, then someone else would take the money and would just keep it for doing this thing that we don't support. Uh, So maybe it would be interesting, I think, if Lionsgate maybe went one step further and said, look, as a company, we have a history of supporting these issues. We allow um, same-sex partners to provide health insurance benefits for each other. So we're also going to take a chunk of the proceeds from Ender's Game. Mm and put it towards, you know, the ACLU or the human rights campaign or some sort of um, actual tangible That's thing yeah. in, support of, in support of LGBT issues. When does really, that come out? You know, Do you know? When does that move uh, I think October is when it October. comes out. So we're going to get to talk about Ender's yeah. Game for, for a while. Okay. Well, we'll follow that story. All right, let's do our, our, our sponsor today. It's a quick one. We've done them before. We'll do them again. Audible.com. Uh, Audible has 100,000 titles to choose from in every genre. Big books you've heard of. Say there's this particular book that was revealed to be about a different author this week. I'm just, you know, giving you a hypothetical. And <laughs> you were interested in it. And maybe your library has a giant hold for it. And uh, the print books are all sold out on Amazon um, and your local bookstore and Barnes & Noble. You know what you could do? Download it, audible.com right now. There's no waiting. You can find it right now. Um, it works on your iPhone, Kindle, any of your Android devo- devices, and more than 500 devices total listening anytime, anywhere you want to listen to. Um, I've got a pick. Do it. Nonfiction, which is rare for me, though I've made two nonfiction audible picks uh, for the podcast. Anyway, this is called uh, So Good They Can't Ignore You, and it's by an author called Cal Newport. And the subtitle is Why Skills Trump Passion in the Quest uh, for Work You Love. Uh, the premise of the book, I am only about halfway through listening to it, so that's my caveat. But the idea here is we all hear this... Um, aphorism of, you know, follow your bliss, you know, do, what are you passionate about? Do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And Newport makes the argument that the things we're passionate about usually are the product of expertise, hard work, and longstanding interest, um, rather than just sort of, you woke up one day and you were passionate about crocheting or something like that. Um, So that really what you want to do is get good at something and then use that um, as as your entree into the work you really want to do. So just be so awesome that people say they have to hire you or they have to pay attention to the work you're doing. And the way you do that is by getting really good at whatever it is you want to get really good at. So it's, it's, it's not quite as, um, I don't know, counterintuitive porn, you know, like the Gladwell thing, like turns out that it's actually opposite of what you think it is. Mm. Um, but it's more like a hand in hand thing. Like just because you love something, doesn't mean you can go out and get a job with, with that love. You have to have skills and expertise and discipline and hard work that go hand in hand with that. And maybe it's not even hand in hand. Maybe what you're good at actually leads what you tend to care about. It's kind of like, think about like the board games that you really like or the card games you really like. Is your favorite one the one you suck at? <laughs> Probably not, right? And this is why I am not passionate about crocheting yeah, or knitting. Right. I, I think I tried. To, I've tried to learn to knit like seven times because yeah. that was a thing in the last decade or so, right. and and it's not happening. But so, say you say you were forced to, you know, say you you know for whatever reason you just put in two hundred hours of learning how to crochet. Right. Probably you'd like it a hell of a lot better than you do right this very moment. Right. But um, instead, I'm just going to keep reading the yeah, hell out of books. Yeah, right. I can so, read a book, man. So that's so good. They can't ignore you by Cal Newport. Uh, you can get that at audible.com. Uh, if you sign up through our special linky link, you'll get a free 30-day trial, which comes with a credit for a free audiobook download. Go to audibletrial.com slash bookriot, and you can do it. And maybe you want to use your free one on So Good They Can't Ignore You if you are using your summer 
to make yourself a better human. Um, so that's Audible. Thanks so much for sponsoring the show. And uh, let's, let's get on. Let's, here here okay. it is. The Big Kahuna. Probably the biggest publishing story of the year, unless I can't even think of something Did, that would be bigger. I, I don't know. That unless there's like a... reasonably possible. Un, some, something even bigger than like Fifty Shades of Grey would have to happen. Yeah, yeah. But I think this is... Well, there's I mean, so many it's angles big. to this. This is huge. Yeah, I have... Uh, a post-it note of all the angles I've thought of so far. I have a little, I have a little note uh, uh, in uh, a text file here for us. So, okay. You, you've probably already heard about this, guys. Uh, J.K. Rowling. Rowling? You know, I don't know. Rowling? I, I go back and forth. I have not yet figured out what is the Rowling. correct pronunciation, Rowling. so I'm just going to alternate. I'm going with Rowling, and if I'm going to be wrong, I'm at least going to be wrong uh, consistently. Uh, there was this book that came out in April, a crime novel called The Cuckoo's Calling by a debut author named Robert Galbraith. Boy, I'm just going to butcher all the names. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's right. Galbraith. Um, and it got pretty good reviews for a crime novel. Uh, was described as having a good protagonist detective named Cormoran Strike who was a military vet, down on his luck, P.I., and this one special case. You know you, you know this story if you know crime novels at all. Mm-hmm. But as being uh, pretty well done and a crime novelist to watch, um, not much was known about him. He had a bio, but no one had met him or interviewed him. And it became pretty clear that it was a pseudonym for somebody, um, but no one n- knew who. Uh, and then this week, the news broke through mysterious... Um, circumstances, which we'll talk about, that it was J.K. Rowling herself had written the book and published it under the pseudonym Robert Galbraith, and then all Bookternet hell broke loose. All kinds. And it broke on what, Saturday night? Yeah, Saturday night. I was sitting at at my computer doing some work for the site, and people started linking to the site. I'm like, did someone have a stroke? Like, what's going on? This can't be right. And lo and behold, uh, the, the first, uh, we should give them credit, the, the first article I saw was in The Independent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I linked to on the site, one of my, my short thing about it Sunday morning. Um, they got confirmation from Rowling that, indeed, she wrote it. And, boy, there's a million, where should we start here uh, beyond just the news? Did I, did I leave anything out in terms of the facts of the case as they have been presented? Uh, no, one other thing that I've heard is that um, she didn't just, this happens to have been published by the same publisher that published um, The Casual Vacancy, which was mm-hmm. Rowling's you know, first adult book that came out last Little fall. Brown. Little Brown. Um, worked with some of the same editors, but apparently this was not planned that way. There's at least one editor from another publishing house um, has come forward and said that she received uh, The Cuckoo's Calling on submission you know, at, mm. under, the, under the pseudonym Robert Galbraith that she read the story and passed on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far, she's the only one who has come forward, but that she has come forward indicates that Rowling, was out there. Rowling's agent right, sent this out. Um, it was her same agent, but it was out there on submission the way that other you know, agented books by hope-to-be debut novelists go out on submission to publishers and just wait hope minute, to find a, a home. Are you suggesting that the, uh, the same editor that did Casual Vacancy picked up this book independently, or are we saying that she also sent it out? And it didn't get picked up. And then she's like, hey, dude, um, <clears throat> this is me. Uh, pick up this book. <laughs> what, I mean, what do we really think happened here? I mean, I think she sent it out. Uh, we know she sent it out on submission right. because no. this editor from Orion has said, I read the book and I passed on it. Um, no one has said yet exactly mm-hmm. how it ended up With at Little Brown. With the same publisher and um, same but editor. This, this having the same publisher and same editor is one of the pieces that helped the case crackers right. you know, figure out uh, who Galbraith really was. So probably it, it wasn't getting any love from other publishers and rolling. Yeah. Nut. If I had to guess, that's what I would guess, that she nudged her actual editor and was like, hey, this is, this is me mine. and let's do this thing and see right. how it goes. It's, it would be so unlikely for the same I editor it. Yeah. to just pick it up um, unknowingly. But I mean, maybe, maybe. having, rec- maybe. having maybe. recognized the writing style or th- yeah. at least that would be a super consistent so let's, editor. So let's, let's build off that cracking the case. So there were a couple of clues that um, some people who were interested in um, – used to, to figure out, or at least get a pretty good sense that it was Rowling, and prompted uh, an admission. And the other one, in addition to like someone's like, hey, same publisher, same editor, blah, 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 was they took it to some uh, literary sort of analysts, 
and had them look at the book. And it's, there's a really nice piece in the New York Times about this. We'll drop this in the show notes. Um, and they, you know, they looked at it and say, were there some consistencies between casual vacancy uh, and um, the cuckoo's calling? Because this person had sort of an idea that it might be rallying because of the the um, fact the the um, provenance, so to speak, the editor and publisher. And there were there's Latin phrases. Mm. That appeared more. She uses Latin phrases more, I guess, than would be standard. Um, drugs, I guess, descriptions of drug use, descriptions of women's clothing um, oh, looked pretty similar. Um, so it's nothing you could get conclude like, yes, this is definitely her. But it was enough to sort of say, okay, this actually is starting to make a lot of sense. And to the point where someone asked her a direct question, and she wasn't going to lie openly about mm-hmm. it, I guess, and and said, yeah, in fact. That's me. So that that's how the thing came to light. There's still some things we don't know uh, exactly about how there's maybe someone on Twitter that said, I know for sure, and that account got deleted. And there's some speculation about maybe someone who had on the publisher author side, we don't know who, that's just speculation, cracked it because, and this is interesting as well, that the novel, while it got good pre-publication reviews, I was looking for reviews when I wrote up a little thing about it. There were no major publications. Um, there were Library Journal and Publishers Weekly, but those are industry-facing um, publications. You didn't see any consumer-facing reviews in USA Today or The Times or in any of the usual places. And it, apparently, the, up until the day that this news broke, the book had sold a grand total of 1,500 copies across all platforms. Which is really interesting. There are like more conspiracies than the X Files yeah. about well, this announcement. And, uh, I'm going to talk about those sales stats just for a second. Yeah, I, well, I think we... that's part of the conspiracy yeah, right. here, right? Is it, the thing wasn't selling that well. Mm-hmm. 1,500 copies in in three months is not an outstanding no. sales record. So one of the theories about why this unveiling happened now is that it wasn't just someone who discovered it. It was, it must've been rolling and her people behind it the whole time because the book's not doing well. And so now we want it to do well and we'll announce who, who the author really is and see what can happen. And right. it was, it was successful. I looked on Sunday at the Amazon uh, movers and shakers chart that shows right. uh, how books have moved in the last 24 hours. And at the point that I was looking at it, the cuckoo's calling was up like nine, 9,832,000%, <laughs> nine, like of, almost I, 10 million percent. That is insane. I started trying to calculate how many copies that meant it had sold in those 24 hours, but we all know what happens when book people do math. Right, <laughs> so. yeah. Um, the lights flicker and the clouds <laughs> it, darken. It ain't pretty. Um, yeah, and it was, It's. I think it's number one on Amazon right now, and it climbed from like number 98,000 to yeah. number one in the span of 12 hours, I think, mm-hmm. on Sunday, uh, something like that, once the major Sunday publications ha- started spreading it around. I'm sure some of you out there have shown some interest in it. Um I don't know, man. So, like, I, I guess I don't have any – I have no moral objections to anything that's going on here. I just think there's a lot of interesting pieces. Um, whether or not someone leaked it because it wasn't moving any units, great. I mean, you're supposed to sell books. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, there, I don't think, though, it's on the publisher side. And the reason I don't think that is because there, there ain't a print copy to be had mm-hmm. um, right now. And if you would, you would think that if the publisher had some plan to leak it – um, that they would make sure that there was a, a bunch of stock sitting around. Um, and there wasn't. Right. There so that's, that's one thing that leads me to believe that it was either someone who knew but didn't have the publisher's best interests in mind when they um, leaked it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sure. And also, Rowling said the reason that she did this was she wanted to publish something. She, she wanted to have some flexibility and some room to play and to try something new. Right. And to publish a book without the pressure of being... J.K. Rowling, yeah. uh, which certainly we saw the impact of that pressure when the casual vacancy came out. And it's it's a completely different kind of book mm-hmm. than the Harry Potter books are. But a lot of the reviews are like, I'm giving this one star because it's not Harry Potter. Uh, so that's a, it's a very real thing for her that uh, the pressure of her reputation and of what people know of her writing is shaping what they expect for her new book. So she wants some room to do something else. And, yeah. and the 
the best way to do that I, it was to publish anonymously. I agree that it's probably not a leak on the publisher's side um, because I had a galley of this book. Oh, like really? Mo- months ago, it came into my house huh. and I remember being like, oh, you know, I mean, I don't really read many mm-hmm. detective stories. Not it's not my thing. Um, and it wasn't wrapped up in a bunch of flashy packaging. And when a publisher is trying to really make a go of a debut novel, it's obvious the, when it comes into a reviewer's uh, mail stack, you can tell mm-hmm. um, that this is a book they're really putting a lot behind because it will come with a letter from the editor. It will come like wrapped up in a fancy. So this was bow. just in one of those like um, Manila. Yeah, it was just another no note, and it was just another galley. Right, just another like cardboard envelope with another galley with the little brown return address on it. Nothing. There was nothing fancy to signify that this is a, a big book that we're putting a lot of money behind. Um, wow, that's really. I mean. So they, I think they are. They must have really undertaken this as a true experiment because if they wanted to, like, knew, I wonder how many people really knew over there. Yeah, if they wanted to force it into being a bestseller by giving it the like the magic juice that they give to some debut novels, that's not the same. That's not really an experiment well, to see if, how this can and, do. And Rowling said what she wanted was to write without the pressure of having her name attached to it and just sort of see what would happen. Maybe the the edict from on high was let's just put it out there and see what it does on its own. Yeah. And maybe they always knew in the back of their mind, like we always have this bullet we can fire, right? Of saying it's it's her um, down the road, so they don't really need to do a whole lot of um, marketing and uh, special sauce all over the galleys to see what we'll do. I mean, I think what maybe surprised Rowling, if I were her, I I could imagine she would be surprised. Not that it got you know, bad or good coverage because it was her name, it's that it got basically no coverage. Like, that's the thing Mm -hmm. that's surprising, probably. She was probably expecting that it would be reviewed and sort of talked about on its own merits in all the places that she would get reviewed, you know, that someone would pick it up and talk about the Times or The Guardian. And just no one did. It's just crickets, man. Um, Which is not, you know, that if she wants the experience of being a no-name writer... She got it. Yeah, that's it happens all the <laughs> it time. Happens that all good, 99% good books, of them, yeah. Yeah, good books come out and they go unnoticed or under-noticed. Um, and and we like this is the mid-list author's lament, you know, we we hear about it all the time all the that time. um and there are all sorts of reasons that authors attribute their lack of um success or their lack of publication reviews to. Um but it can happen to even J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Of course, J.K. Rowling now can announce that she's J.K. Rowling and her books, her book sales can go through the roof. Well, and she doesn't need the book sales. Right. I mean, and she doesn't. Her giant like, pound, her pounds sterling are just falling out of her eyeballs. So. Right. Yeah. There's there's a lot of vitriol that I've seen, at least, about. Well, people like, are pissed. And I. Yeah. So the, why are they pissed? We're not they're pissed. They're outraged. I'm not, I'm not pissed. I don't think J.K. Rowling needs a gimmick to sell a yeah. book. She's J.K. No. Rowling. And if she wanted to do this, she would have just published The Cuckoo's Calling under her own name, the way she published The Casual Vacancy under her own name. I guess. I mean, I guess if. The the strongest um, irritation I can muster maybe is this is a little bit of having your cake and eating it too, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm going to do the pseudonym thing, and then when it doesn't, when it no longer sort of serves my purposes, I will reveal that it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I can't even really get that upset about it. So yeah, I had a little uh, like J.K. Rowling tinfoil hat <laughs> moment. <laughs> yeah. When it for, when the news first broke, before I had had a chance to read much about it, because this is like right at the ninety day mark ish uh-huh. um, for the sales, and in brick and mortar bookstores, the ninety day mark is a big deal. Um, when you when I worked for Barnes and Noble, we would constantly be going around scanning different sections, and anytime you scan a title that hasn't sold in the last ninety days, it gets pulled off the shelves and returned to the publisher to make sure. space for something else on the shelves that Absolutely. you think will sense. sell. Yeah. Um, so. If the Cuckoo's Calling were bought into a bunch of brick-and-mortar stores when it first came out, it had 90 days to earn its spot on the shelves. And having only sold 1,500 copies in all formats, it was not earning those spots. It wasn't going to keep them in a lot of bookstores. So I did have a little moment of like, oh, it's awfully convenient that uh, that she's right at that mark. And now they're going to sell a bunch of them and Mm -hmm. keep them on shelves. But I don't think that's really what was going on. Maybe. I mean, it's certainly possible. It's like one of those telling coincidences that may or may not tell. Um, I guess another thing that's interesting about it is the not just the pseudonym, but the choice of pseudonym. Right. Um, it's a dude. 
It is a dude. And she, Rowling published uh, Harry Potter under JK because she was told that kids, especially boys, would not buy a book that said Joanne Rowling. Joanne Rowling, yeah. On the front. So it is, it's interesting that she picked a male name this time around also. But we've talked about this a little on the show. Yeah. In, in previous episodes that in genre fiction, a lot of women publish under, uh, under male pseudonyms mm-hmm. because of the assumption that, uh, whether it's correct or not, that dudes want to read books written by dudes. And this is a detective story, and the primary audience for that is men. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I guess I take it back to she, what she, her stated goal with writing under a pseudonym, and I'm going to take her at her word for this, I I tend to believe this, Mm -hmm. is that she wanted to publish it without sort of the weight and expectation and reaction that her name now brings with it. Well, that makes sense. And if you want to do that, then, I don't know, I guess... I guess I would be more curious to hear her own reasoning for why picking Robert. Was it just, w- w- would it be so pragmatic as well? Dude, sell better if your name is a guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I think it might be. Also, there's a whole fictional what if bi- she wants bio to sell books, for, put her name on it. Yeah. I guess for, that's the thing I don't understand. Like They created this whole identity for Robert Galbraith. Yeah. There's, like there's, a, even, there's a bio. He's like a military specialist, maybe she felt like she needed a male here's, name here's to one attach. Thing that I do raise my eyebrows a little bit. Like that's in marketing copy to get people to buy it. And it's all a lie. Right. right? I mean, that, that's a little rough. I have to admit. I mean, if we think any people out there make their purchasing and reading decisions, at least in part about bio uh, bios of the authors. And I think some do, or at least it's a factor that's misleading them. Isn't it? This isn't it actually is. written by this dude who has this particular experience. Uh, right, and I, I, it is misleading. I was thinking about um, some of the like romance or erotica that I've read that lists uh, in the author's bio says, you know, like so and so is uh, like also works as a dominatrix or whatever. Right. And if it turned out to not be true that the author also worked as a dominatrix and wasn't just a writer, that would change uh, how my knowledge of the author had informed my experience of the book. Um, and it lends credibility, perhaps, where credibility hasn't been right. earned. You know, someone who's well, worked in that situation can think, write about it. If you think of books as being maybe not a zero-sum, but a competitive market where you're competing with that author whose book is sitting next to you on the table, and if they're a crime writer who is, you know, uh, a cr- I, I'm a writer and English teacher living in uh, Montpellier, like that's an unfair advantage because you just lied about who you're... Right. I mean, I, I, I would think that if I'm picking between two crime novels and one is this crazy-sounding backstory and the other is some writer living in Maine, you know, with a bunch of dogs, like, I'm going to be like, well, this person seems like they may have some other information. Maybe I'll pick that up. So that right, does yeah, they, seem misleading to me. I don't like, I don't like that part. I, I don't, don't like, like that, that part. part of it either. And if, that- it said, if it said Robert Galraith is a writer living in Liverpool. And that was it. I mean, no big deal. Like that, that's leave it as it is, but like, sure. Or even like a lifelong fan of detective stories. Yeah. You just or, leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, that's a little unseemly. That's the, and it undermines that's the, the, I just wanted to see what the reaction would be if it wasn't my name. Like there's a little bit more calculation uh, going mm-hmm. into that, that particular piece of it. I have to say, I looked at the reviews on Goodreads and other places that readers were giving. And by and large, I'd say people thought this is, pretty good for, you know, as a good protagonist, it's well plotted and it's satisfying for a detective novel. Um, it wasn't blowing anyone away, but it was a professional, like good tale, um, for people that liked it. Only had 25 good re- good reads reviews on Saturday night. Be interesting to keep an eye on that. It had 112 by Sunday. Oh man. So I don't know. I, I, I didn't want to look at them cause I'm sure most of the reviews as some good reads reviews can be as like not about the book, but about the things about the book, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's a little bit tricky. Um, let's see, what else do we so, have on well, the Well, I went on Twitter. I was kind of trolling around for other information related to this. Mm. Um, the gender flipping thing is so interesting yeah. to me. So I asked Twitter if there were well-known cases in which men had written under women's pseudonyms. Mm. Um, it seems that, that doesn't happen as often, except it happens apparently in romance. Mm. Um, I got several uh, suggestions from friends on Twitter, several links. And the most interesting one is from earlier this year, um, a story that the Today Show covered where um, a British romance author named Jessica Blair, who had just co- uh, 
uh, released the 22nd book in a popular series of romance novels, was outed as an 89-year-old man named Bill Spence. Uh, and this is he, awesome. This is so awesome. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, he just, I mean, he looks like your grandpa, yep. uh, except your grandpa's writing romance novels. That's awesome. Uh, this guy's my hero. Yeah, he's, this is pretty cool. I, I sort of want to find a Jessica yeah, Blair romance novel and read it now. Um, <laughs> but it, it also sort of lends an idea to, or lends some credence to this argument that people are flipping their gender for their pseudonyms uh, in genre fiction to fit what the audience's expectations or what maybe the publisher thinks the audience's expectations are about who these writers are. You know, most romance writers or most romance readers are women. And do you want to read a romance story written by an 89 year old man? Maybe not, but you're willing to read the exact same story if you think it came from a younger woman. Yeah. Which is so unfair to everyone. (laughs) It is. It's 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 so unfair. It's so unfair all the way around. It means we get to uh, discover things like this awesome 89 year old man has been writing romance novels, which is Um, great. I guess it also, I was thinking too, because Rowling has now said she's going to continue this series with this character and under the same pen name. Interesting. Um, 2014, apparently the next in the series is going to come out. Uh, so, you know, when that one comes out, it'll be a big deal and everyone will know. And it got me thinking, there are several writers who have known pseudonyms out there. Um, for example, uh, uh, John Banville writes, um, genre mysteries and crime sort of stories under the name Benjamin Black. And it's well known. Stephen King has a pseudonym. I can't remember Mm -hmm. what it is. Richard Bachman. Yeah. He writes, is it different stuff? I've forgotten now. Like, why does he use that name and under what circumstances compels him to do that? Uh, Do you remember? That's, I think there's actually, we have a piece running later today that um, Ed McCracken wrote where he mentions this. It yeah. was, I think it was in the 80s, and it's slightly different stuff mm-hmm. um, that, that Stephen King conducted the experiment for basically the same reasons the same that J.K. Reason. Rowling did. By then, people had a certain set of ideas about what a Stephen King book was, and he wanted to be free of that. But he got outed when a bookseller um, recognized a bunch of similarities and asked him if, if he was also Richard Bachman. Yeah. Um, Nora Roberts, who is right. well-known, a well-known and very popular popular romance writer writes um, thrillers under the name J.D. Robb. And so she does the initial flip thing right. there. Uh, who else? Uh, who else? C.S. Lewis had a pseudonym, I think, when he wrote yeah. a book about grief. That's right. Um, no other ones come to mind. Uh, the, the, the pseudonym that everyone knows is a weird phenomenon. <laughs> they <laughs> yeah. keep using it. I think that's very strange. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons to use a pseudonym. Um, and people not sort of make the connection or know, but the ones where everyone, the open secret one is the one I can't quite uh, wrap my head yeah. around. I wonder if when the next Robert Galbraith book comes out, it will come out and like indicate on the book somewhere that Robert Galbraith is a pseudonym for J.K. J. Rowling. J.K. Rowling writing like, it'll, as Robert Galbraith. Yeah, it'll be a huge deal like in publishing that that's, that, that book is coming out. We'll all be talking about it. But like the average person who's wandering a bookstore just looking for the next thing to read, unless there's a, a notice on the book somewhere that this person is actually yeah. J.K. Rowling, there it might that, not affect them. Why even have the pseudonym? It just becomes right. insane. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, if it were up to me, if I were her at this point, the next one would just be J.K. Rowling. That's what I would do. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd, you know, this thing happened and we're outed and let's not, let's yeah, not, it's, let's not distract with our offhand. It's not an pretend. experiment anymore. Yeah, I don't know what, I don't know what the end of that would be necessarily. Um, okay. Anything else there? What else is interesting to that about, to, to you about that? I think I picked off all the things yeah, on my I'm, I'm all post-it note. Off. Um, I guess the other thing that's interesting too, that it could rise so quickly on the bestseller charts because of eBooks. Oh, right. Um, because there weren't that many print copies just laying around for people to buy all of a sudden. Um, but since, you know, those got snapped up. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, but yeah, since, we have a couple contributors that have yeah, bought it right. and are reading it. If you're reading it and you have thoughts, you should email us at podcast should. at com and tell us what you think. If you read it before you knew who the author was, we'd really love to hear about that. And apparently it's doing unbelievably on audio right now. Oh, cool. Um, I guess maybe some people were into audiobooks and can't get a print copy. They're like, well, it's available in audio. So that's um, a, a, a choice that a lot of people are turning to in addition to ebooks. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a good use of your Audible. Yeah, credit. definitely. It's available right now. You can go check it out. 
Um, all right. You want to tell me about some new books? We got some new books this all right, do week. It. Okay. This, the first one is called The Never List uh, by Kethy, I think is how you pronounce it. Kethy Zahn. We'll go with that. K-O-E-T-H-I. Z-A-N is the last name. Um, it's about two best friends who keep a list of things that they will never do for safety's sake, like under any circumstances. These girls, I guess, are very cautious and they are very concerned about safety. So they have this never list. Uh, and one night, against their better judgment, they take a cab ride. And of course, the one time they go against their better judgment, they end up held captive and tortured for three years. Uh, only one of them makes it out of this guy's like dungeon basement. It puts the lotion on its skin no, situation. Oh God. Uh-huh. One of them makes it out. 10 years later, the abductor is up for parole and he's been sending her creepy letters from jail, I guess the whole time. And now she can't ignore it anymore. So she's going to unravel more of this mystery. Um, and she ends up sort of falling into uh, some seedy underworlds trying to do it. One of our contributors, Emily Gatlin, wrote about this in Buy, Borrow, Bypass on the site this mm-hmm. week. And she said it was so scary, she put it in her freezer. So mm-hmm. that, oh, like that Friends episode? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, that, that, right. uh, so that she could protect herself from it. There's uh, This sounds, I mean, this sounds straight up creepy to me. I think often reading reading creepy things um, is scarier than watching them on, like, I don't know if I could read Silence of the Lambs as easily as I can watch it. And this sort of has a feel like that to me. Um, If you're sensitive to these sorts of things, this is probably a lot of stuff to avoid in this book, but I bought it immediately. You You know what they should call this book? Trigger warning. They should call this book. They should. Trigger warning. It feels sort of like um, So Much Pretty by Kara Hoffman, which came out mm-hmm. a few years ago and was about a young woman in a small town who was abducted by a group of men. And they kept her like in this panel between two walls no. in there. Stop it. Shut it down. All right. Move on to the next. Super I, creepy. I need to sleep in the next one. Okay. Just this okay. next one, this one might ring all of oh, your Oh, I love that. My bells are ready to be rung. It's about a rising star in Brooklyn's literary scene. Oh, baby. Okay. <laughs> it's called The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P. Oh, it's by Adele Waldman. Uh-huh. Uh, and Nate Piven, the title character, is a rising star in the Brooklyn literary scene. And after like several years of trying and trying and reaching, um, he is just sort of starting to get a taste of success. He has um, a taste of success with writing and with women, apparently. So this book is about um, the 21st century world of literature, but also of love. And one of the lines here is, uh, wit and conversation are not at all dead. Is romance. Oh uh, but it's li- this is literary fiction about a writer. Yeah, okay. Uh, you got me. I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. And, and he's you know, trying and probably mostly failing to get the ladies. Uh, I also really want to read this book now. Uh, it's getting great reviews. I've seen a lot of people raving about it on Twitter. So if, uh, if scary girls with um, Buffalo Bill making suits out of them from his basement is not your thing, mm-hmm. then you should maybe skip the never list, but do the love. So of- this is all the sad young literary dudes written by a lady. Adele Waldman is a lady. Yeah, it is. Adele That's Waldman. interesting. That's a good. A, that's a good take on the Brook, yeah, Brooklyn literary genre. It's uh, what did we the previous episode? Um, people in Brooklyn having thoughts. People in Brooklyn <laughs> having thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> I think this is going to be that. They but now we're going to do alternate titles for books this week. This one should be called "Read This on the F Train" with everyone else in publishing. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of. I guess I should not be surprised that a lot of people in my yeah. Twitter stream love this book because a lot of people in my Twitter stream are people who work in publishing and live in Brooklyn. It's like uh, genre kryptonite for all of like the editorialists. <laughs> that work in publishing and live in Parkslow. <laughs> right. So those are the new books this week, just a couple, sort awesome. of a, a quiet week for publishing. Yeah, okay. Uh, Spark Up. We got a, a gadget. Shinsky found a gadget for us. So Man, I love gadgets. You, t- you found this, so you give me the, uh, the lowdown. SparkUp, it's a new company, literary startup. Uh, you can find them at sparkupreader.com. And if you want to be able to do bedtime story with your kids, but you're not going to be at home for whatever reason, you can record yourself reading the book to your kids and SparkUp, which I think is 60 bucks to, to get the product. Yep. Um, then whoever is at home with your kids, your partner or the babysitter, uh, can t- as they turn the page, it detects that the page is being turned and it progresses your reading of the story to go along with it. So you can read your kids a bedtime story without actually being there. Um, I got no I snark for this. I don't either. I think I mean, it's this, cool. It's cool. If you want to do this and be reading to your kids when you, for some reason, can't be there, 
pretty darn cool. It seems to me that there might also be other uses for this thing. Like, uh, I, I don't do this, but I have friends who, uh, as in a couple, read to each other. Um, you could so you could still read to your partner when you're not mm-hmm. there. Maybe you record yourself reading some poetry or something. I don't, I don't know. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that like, seems I awfully smushy for me. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not uh, so smushy, but people out there are certainly. Yeah, I, you know, I've heard a lot of stories recently from um, all the people in my world, probably the kinds of people that will read love affairs of Nathaniel P, um, <laughs> who read to their kids over Skype or FaceTime on their phones mm-hmm. at night yeah. when they're away traveling. Um, but if for some reason you can't do that. Uh, I wonder if also you can like, I wonder how many you can record, because that would be, be kind of a cool thing to have in the future. Like if you have like kind of an archive of your um, reading to your kids and then you can pass that on to them and their grandkids and you have these recordings of family members reading. Um, Also, maybe a good thing for grandparents and other people Mm -hmm. who live far away. That's kind of what I was thinking about, too, that aren't there Um, every night. You could have their voices um, be a part of their kids reading lives. And that's that's super cool. Um, My son is just to the point where he can turn the pages and sort of follow along. But he can't read, so but he wants to be independent. So that's also kind of, might be a nice thing for him. We can sort of sit there and have someone read it to him, but not have to have dad turning the pages and being all dad-like up in his <laughs> face all the time. Yeah, I think it would be fun, especially for books that really lend themselves to fun voices, maybe. Yeah, that's um, cool. I always buy, I have nine nieces and nephews, and I always buy them um, the Skippy John Jones mm-hmm. series because Skippy is a uh, Siamese cat who thinks he's a chihuahua. Mm. And the, the books have a bunch of Spanglish in them. <laughs> and Skippy John has a hilarious little accent. So I have fun reading those and I would love to be able to just record myself and for every time the kids pick those books up to hear me doing uh, Skippy John. That's awesome. So that's sparkupreader.com. Uh, you can check that out. We'll drop a link in the show notes if you want to see it, but check that out. There, there might be a, a use for that if you've got a baby shower or a, a birthday or, you know, the holidays. Yeah, good for the Man, holidays. They're, they're coming upon us here. Okay. Birthdays. 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 Who has birthdays this week, Jeff? Big Papa. Ernie, oh, big. <laughs> as I call him. I love it when you call him um, Big Papa. I know, right? Ernest Hemingway, born July 21st, 1899 in Oak Park, Illinois. You know, everyone knows everything about Ernest. Uh, we know what kind of drinks he liked and what kind of ladies he liked and how short he liked his sentences. Um, so it was a little hard for me to find something tasty for you, a fact, a fact morsel. Um, but I, this is one I had never heard before, is that he always hated his first name. Huh. Didn't like it. Um, and he said the reason is because he associated with the protagonist of Oscar Wilde's play, The Importance of Being Earnest, which, if you know the play, Ernest is kind of this foolish, joke, naive hero of that play. Um, and you might imagine, if you know the play, that um, Hemingway would not be super excited to be associated with that person, if you know anything about Hemingway. So I thought that was interesting. That is. I can think of a lot of reasons that a person might not like the name Ernest. Yep. But this Oscar Wilde association would be low on my list. Yeah. I mean, I guess, too, like, it's hard to remember now, but Oscar Wilde wasn't in the more distant past as he feels to us now mm. when uh, Hemingway was coming of age in the early 19th century. Um, and he was a literary guy from high school on. So uh, I, th- I thought that was a, that was pretty interesting. Yeah, to know I want to know more about that. It seems to me that Hemingway and Oscar Wilde maybe shared some of the same sensibilities about Hmm. indulgence uh, or hedonistic tendencies. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, maybe. But wanting to distance from a particular character is is interesting. I mean, name another literary character named Ernest. Like, that's your antecedent, right? Right, that's That's, true. That's the one. Um, It's like if your name is Atticus, you've got Atticus Finch, and that's it. That's all you you can go to. Um, So anyway, Papa Hemingway, hate his name, and that's why. Born July 21st, 1899. Alexander Dumas. July 24th, 1802, so 101 years ago this coming week, excuse me, 111 years ago this coming week, Alexander Dumas was born. And man, this guy had a, this guy has a bio. I'm going to give you a few things here. Um, For starters, his grandfather was a general for Napoleon. Whoa. I mean, okay, cool enough, right? That's fancy. Yeah. uh, And also his, his grand, the same grandfather uh, I'm sorry, his father was a general from Napoleon. His grandfather um, w- w- was a, um, you know, a, an expat in uh, Haiti and married a slave. Alexander hmm. Dumas' grandmother was an Afro-Caribbean slave. 
Um, so that's very interesting, I think. Yeah. And, and Dumas, as you know, if you know the big books, um, Three Musketeers, Count of Monte Cristo, big, you know, juicy action adventures. Uh, he was inspired by his, the tales that his mother told him of his father's exploits during the revolution. Um, Alexander Dumas' father died when he was four, so he didn't ever know them. So the image of this sort of swashbuckling, sword-carrying, horse-riding dad informed a lot of these characters. Um, but extraordinarily prolific was Dumas. He wrote, he, he had over 100,000 pages of work published in his life. Holy cow. And I did a little math. So um, if, you f- if you hear screaming in the background, you'll know that I, I've, I've done math. Uh, so he was born in 1802 and he died in 1870. So I did mm-hmm. the math. And if you divide it out, that means he averaged four pages a day of, from the day he was born to the day he died. That's incredible. And you pro- he probably didn't start writing the day he was born. He probably did not. So if it's from the day he started writing, yeah. it's probably... Which I looked at around, it was 18 or 19 he started writing articles. Okay, so, gotta, so 50 just, years. So like you're looking at really six to seven pages a day, uh, which is insane. That is insane. I see a lot of writers like on Twitter talking about their goal is to write one good page right. a day. Um, yeah, and I'm... I've never read Dumas in the original French. I don't know if it's extraordinarily great prose, but it's compelling plot. You know, I love this stuff when I was 12, 13, mm-hmm. 14. I, you know, I still love it, but I, I tore through uh, Dumas when I was a kid and loved that sort of stuff. So happy birthday to Ernest Hemingway and Alexander Dumas, one who hated their name and one who could not stop writing. And uh, both of whom we know are dead. We know they're both dead. <laughs> I'm not going to live that down, am I? <laughs> Probably not. It's going to be alive long after I'm dead. Uh, we got one last story. We're going to end on a good note. Yeah, this is a good, happy one. It's sort of, it feels intuitive, but maybe yeah. that's confirmation bias <laughs> right, uh, as, yeah, a, right. as a reader. But a Smithsonian Magazine did a story uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, about how being a lifelong bookworm will keep you sharp or may may being the operative word, may help Mm -hmm. keep you sharp uh, in old age, that people who read frequently and all through their lives have a uh, statistically significantly lower risk of dementia. Mm -hmm. It's the use it or lose it thing, right? Right. Right. Do you have thoughts about this, Jeff? Well, the the specific stats that the study found were, I've now lost it. Uh, Hold on. Oh, I got it. 32% decline in a a 30%, this is a little hard to say. 32% 32% less memory loss, right? Mm-hmm. If you were a consistent reader into your old age. Um, whereas if you weren't, you had, what, a 48% decline? Is that the stat I'm looking uh, at? Those who didn't read or write often later in life, uh, their memory decline was 48% faster. Faster. So the, the most... Hmm, the most positive way to think about this, which I don't necessarily know is true, is like if you just keep reading, your memory will stay better, right? That's, that's what all of us readers want this to say. Right. It doesn't necessarily say that, right, Rebecca, because of logic. Right, because of correlation not being causation. Right. Uh, but also in, in this piece, they mentioned that they found that um, mental activity, not just reading, but mental activity, period, accounted for about 15% of the difference mm-hmm. in memory decline, which read the other way means that 85% of the differences in memory decline between the people in this study were attributed to things that aren't mental activity. So. Right. Even though there's a statistically significant difference between reading later in life and staying mentally active later in life, um, whether or not you end up with dementia, like right. only 15% of those variables you know, are, right. are based in this mental activity. And, and one thing. would think if you're losing your memory, uh, you're not going to do a lot of reading, right? So maybe that right. is influencing the people who are actually reading is because they're having trouble remembering what happened on the last few pages in the last chapters. Like, if you can't remember what you're reading, I'm going to stop reading. And so it starts to have this correlation effect rather than a causal effect. It would be great if we could just prescribe ourselves one crime novel a week um, right. And that would keep our memory up. It's not quite that simple. <laughs> it is not that simple. And, you know, it, it does become prescriptive. We, we hear a lot about, yeah. like, use it or lose it. You should be doing crossword puzzles mm-hmm. when you're in your 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, to, to keep yourself active. But I think that also sort of 
has a, an unfortunate byproduct of blaming people who end up with right. these things like, oh, yeah. you got dementia because you maybe you didn't read enough. Maybe if you had done um, brain teasers you every really morning. actually had ever finished Proust, you wouldn't be right. sitting there like that. Right. You would have some other issues. Right. <laughs> um, so. it's, it's interesting. You know, I think it's good to... Of course, we want to do all the things that we can do to keep ourselves healthy kind of and one of those sharp. Straw but man arguments too. It's like everyone's like, "Yeah, reading's good for you," and no one out there is like saying, "You know, reading. If you read too much, right. your face is going to fall off." <laughs> right. It feels a little like uh, self-congratulatory. That and maybe <laughs> it's like it's like a a victimless uh, yeah. page view trolling right. situation. Like I know it's a slow news week, which by the way, this thing was published on July third in Smithsonian yeah. Magazine, so it was a slow news week let's write something that people are going to pass around because it makes them feel good. Right. And nothing makes the book people feel better than here's an article. Forever Cause I read, right. Here's an article about why books yeah. are awesome. You know, like, let's just, let's just enough to say books are awesome and that you like them. Uh, right. I sometimes feel that way. Like there's a lot of, um, methinks the lady doth too much protest about mm-hmm. the value of reading. Right. Because I think ultimately we don't, have a consensus of why reading is good for us. We just like it and we think it's good for us. That's enough for me personally, I have to sure. say. Sure. Yeah, that's um, enough for me too. Maybe uh, if they would round out this study and be like, so 15% of the difference is attributed to mental activity, but yeah. here are the other variables that made a big difference. And it's probably the stuff we already know. It's mm-hmm. probably getting enough sleep. It's probably eating right and exercising yeah. frequently and all of those factors that we hear about that help keep us healthy. So being mentally active is just... Right. Which could be doing Sudoku and word working. It yeah. may not be necessarily reading um, Virginia right. Woolf until you die. Um, it, reading Virginia Woolf until you die is the thing that makes me like yeah. not want to live very long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, baby. How okay. to get depressed in one easy step. So that's, you know, we'll drop the link in the show notes there. You can check that out. And I think that's our show. That is our show. That's, it's, it, we, we recorded early so we can get this out for you. Rebecca's going on vacation. I hope you have a wonderful vacation. Thank you, thank you. And enjoy read your a time. Bunch. Yeah, read a bunch of books. I'm going to pay a visit to our favorite Barnes & Noble, our shared oh, favorite. Oh, and Kent, on the plaza in Kansas mm-hmm. City. Long may it live. Um, Long. To dispense frappuccinos and bestsellers. Um, you can catch us. I'm at Reading Ape on Twitter. And I am at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. And you can find the site at Book Riot on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Book Riot. If you've got feedback for the podcast, you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. You can find the show notes at bookriot.com slash category slash podcasts. That's it. Yeah, or actually, that's not all. If you are listening to this show and you like it or you just oh, have thoughts about it yes. that you want to share, please rate take it. a moment to rate it or review it on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Um, and we are reading those reviews. We're taking your feedback seriously, we and we appreciate it. Yeah, one, we got some feedback that they wanted the list of all the new titles that Rebecca rounds up and drop them into the show notes. So we did, and there they are. We're doing it. So we're listening, and we'll at least listen, even if we don't take um, your suggestion. We'll have a very good reason not to have, which we may or may not tell you. <laughs> All right. Thanks and so much for listening. Note. We'll talk to you guys later. Thanks so much. Bye, Rebecca. Thanks. Bye, Jeff.